This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, more sights and sounds from Verge 20, Gina McCarthy on the role of big business in climate action, the mayor of Stockton, California on financing the just transition, and is nuclear about to make a comeback? We're having a meltdown this week on 350. It's November 6, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her hideaway in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. Yes, I am hiding big time. <laughs> it just seems like a good week to hide. <laughs> We're all hiding and have, have yeah. been in for, for months, but this week was mm-hmm. a good week to hide, to mm-hmm. stay away from uh, the hustle and bustle because there was enough hustle and bustle in the ether. We uh, apparently had an election. I don't know. Maybe you were following that um, this week. Um, and truth be told, we are recording this uh, midweek. And so we've seen some of the results. We don't really know what's happening or what's going to have happened by the time this podcast drops on Friday morning. Um, but it's looking interesting and uh, never what one expected. Um, but, you know. We're all hoping that there's a vote there for the clean economy when all is said and done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. We do know one thing for certain. The U.S. is no longer in the Paris Agreement. Ah, yes. And you wrote this lovely piece called, We'll lovely. Always I don't Have know about Paris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> the title was lovely, at least. Uh, <laughs> uh, but well, actually, uh, yeah. I, mean, I, do, I do have optimism. Um, that the spirit of Paris is alive in in the corporate world and that it's also alive in states. And of course it's alive outside the United States, <laughs> but I mean, like outside the federal government. Um, but I do, yeah, I do what I was trying to say in my essay, don't know if I did, was really that we should take that, the spirit of that agreement and, and carry it forward. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that that line for the uninitiated came from the 1942 classic Casablanca when uh, Humphrey Bogart character Rick is um, is speaking those words. It's about it's about love, but it's also about uh, human memory and and remembering, uh, you know, sort of what what's happened so far and that you carry that with you. And, and in some strange way, that actually does relate to what you're talking about here, Heather, and that we, you know, we know what Paris is about. We have that memory of those goals and they haven't gone away, those goals or the need behind those goals. So there is a, there is a memory that we need to, uh, 
to continue to, to foster and, and live up to. And so maybe I've stretched that a little bit uh, be to the breaking point, but I sort of like that connection to the 1942 classic Casablanca. Indeed. And I do too. Feeling nostalgic. Yeah. Well, speaking of going back in time, let's cover the Week in Review. One of the things I love about uh, the three stories that that you picked this week, Heather, for the Week in Review, is that uh, they're all uh, explainers, as we say in the press, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. pieces that were specifically designed to help the reader get a grounding on on a specific topic. And the the first of those I want to talk about is one that Jesse Klein did uh, on the differences between uh, forestry and soil carbon as offsets. And you know the role of offsets is just growing and growing, and as as more and more companies and cities and states and countries make net zero commitments, some of that that the reason it's net zero is because uh, even though they're going to be you know re- having some emissions, they're going to offset those, and so the role of offsets is going to be uh, uh, even more important than it has. And the conversation about offsets really has turned to what's called nature based solutions, and that's basically forestry and farming and the role each of those can play. Farming in the sense that uh, there's a number of techniques that farmers can use to uh, you have the soil absorb carbon and sequester it there, by the way, also making the soil richer and the plants grow grow better. But Jesse did a great job of, of helping to look at some of the six key differences here in terms of the longevity of these credits, uh, forestry obviously has a, a much longer lifetime. Uh, soil has certain challenges. Uh, there's additionality issues. Additionality is a geeky term that basically says, would this have happened anyway? If so, it's not additional. Or is this only happening because somebody or somebody's purchased offsets to fund this? And, and those are some issues that came up with the early offsets about are you actually doing anything different? Are you just writing a check for something that would have already happened? Anyway, uh, wh- what did you think about this? So I, what I wanted to give a little bit of context around this, but one of the reasons Jessie wrote this piece is she attended several of the really well-attended sessions at Verge 20 that we had on this topic. Um, there was a whole buyer's guide series uh, about carbon credits in general. And, um, and this is, was some of her takeaways from that, but yeah, I, the additionality thing, um, really was, was intriguing to me. Also the, the issue of how long does, does this credit last? So how long should the contract be? Do you want the, the carbon to be stored for centuries? Um, like as it might be with the forest or in 10 year increments, um, like, you might be seeing with with uh, farming and soil, so it's it's just I think I think that that was also a, a aha for me was understanding that there's a big difference in the length of the contracts and understanding that as you're buying them, I think is number one a very important thing to do, there, and also the the issue uh, that you could lose it quicker um, out of the soil carbon right out of the soil sequestration just because of practices that could be just practices that could be go wrong in, in terms of a, a farm. Whereas it's, it takes a lot of effort to, to get the forests and, and take that away. It just, I mean, well, yeah. at, at the same time, we've seen massive swaths of forest 
go up Unless in flames uh, yes, exactly. in California and Colorado and mm-hmm. all around the world. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's, that is another issue that needs to be, to be looked at. Or, or if the trees are cut down, if somebody, you know, the thing is, is that with offsets is we're making bets and it is a faith-based initiative in a lot of ways, as they used to say, in federal policy. That this is actually going to happen, that the farmer is actually doing certain things, that the tree has not only been planted and, 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 but it's, it's continues to grow and, and sequester carbon. And some of these things are going to be well past, uh, you know, a farm could change hands. It could be developed into a, into, uh, you know, tract homes or a shopping mall or whatever. And obviously forests can be cut down or burned and turned into agricultural land and all, all sorts of things. And so, verifiability is a big issue in all of this. And um, it's interesting that isn't one of the six things that she talks about, at least not explicitly, but uh, that that is a huge issue in how you verify that and prove that what you've paid for and what you've claimed is actually happening. Indeed. And look for more from, from Jesse. She will be writing some um, additional pieces, at least one we know of, <laughs> on, on this on topic. This topic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of complex topics, let's turn to this uh, really fascinating and, and substantive piece that Ben Soltoff did on, on nuclear. Uh, he, and he calls it potentially a climate tech comeback story. Um, and, you know, we talk about wading into a, a minefield. Um, this is uh, such a complex area, but it's, it, you know, it's come back to light and it's worth looking at. And, and, Ben doesn't make any advocacy statements about we should or shouldn't be using nuclear. Just examine, like any good uh, journalist does, examines the uh, ins and outs of things. Um, there's a whole range of new technologies that are addressing some of the issues around the size. They can be downsized. They can be pretty small now. Around the versatility, they can produce not just electricity, but also heat, which can have a, a beneficial role in 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 turning hydrogen, uh, turning uh, natural gas into hydrogen, which is creating yet another fuel. The you know, safety obviously is a huge, huge issue, the non-proliferation piece, and sort of gets into what's how to think about these things uh, and uh, the pluses and minuses on, on both sides. Indeed. And I think one of the reasons that um, this is a, a particularly important piece to think about is that Many, if you look at some of the utilities, they have low carbon commitments, not necessarily renewable energy or solar or wind. And some of them are thinking about nuclear um, in terms of where how they're going to get to that goal. Now, I don't know if that will come to pass and if they're thinking old, you know, the sort of old, huge centralized uh, nuclear power plants that we've that we that everyone sort of associates with the problems that we've had. the the you know the safety issues and so forth, but what we're we're talking about is these much smaller reactors in, in terms of um, what they produce. Existing, if you think about it, the context is this: existing nuclear reactors generate 500 megawatts to one gigawatt of electricity. So these are these small modular reactors are generating less than 300 megawatts. So they're a lot smaller. They could be more decentralized, um, as you mentioned before. Could have an industrial. Um, sort of component where they're, they're, they're in a very specific spot handling very specific loads. And so it's kind of like actually kind of feeds into the whole distributed grid concept that we've been talking about for the last couple of years. 
And so that's this is another potential option. Um, and, and yes, indeed, there's several technologies that are explored here and, and how they're cooled and so forth. And, and it is a, just like I said, a, as you mentioned before, it's a very well reported piece. It just sort of lays out what's going on and, and gives uh, us an idea of what to watch for. Yeah, and and it, the controversial nature of this does not go away from any of this. That these are all. I, I mean, the big question really is: is from a, a, a money perspective and an investment perspective, um, and even from a time perspective, is this the best way to get both serve our energy needs and our carbon reduction needs? And that's an open question. It's not clear cut either way, whether investing in storage, for example, there's a lot of emerging technologies that could use the billion dollars it takes to, uh, to, to create or multiple billion dollars it takes to create a modern nuclear plant. Are there other technologies that would be better that are also carbon free that, but less risky, less costly, maybe faster to market? So, um, this is a really has always been in my lifetime, and at least in the last fifty or so years, an incredibly complex topic. Uh, but I think uh, it, it's always worth examining these things, particularly in light of the climate crisis. And I thought that Ben did a really good job. But I want to turn to a, a different energy story that another one of our, our great contributors, Adam Aston, uh, did for us, uh, looking at the wholesale markets of big power buyers and why corporates, corporations that are making large investments uh, in renewable power and large commitments to renewable, renewable power are transforming these wholesale markets. Um, I don't know how deep you are in this, Heather. A lot of this uh, is new to me and not new, but I'm sort of still trying to understand it all. But uh, do you want to, to explain what a wholesale market is? Yeah, so the ISOs, if you will, the like the different power markets that straddle multiple states and kind of coordinate the flow from the power plants across the grid and so forth. So what what this story is really about is the next level of sophistication for corporate procurement of renewable energy. So what's happening and what 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 this um, particular story is actually really focused on is a new set of principles that the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance is proposing for. Um, wholesale markets, basically to to make things more common across them, um, to help corporate buyers be more have a better understanding of the rules, so that they can they can go into these markets and procure renewable energy um, at a in a way that it's well standard across these different regions. So when you buy on the wholesale market, it's different than buying obviously a through a power purchase agreement. Um, that you're doing in a, in a particular place. And this lets them get more engaged directly in the actual power that, that's flowing on, their, on the grid that they might be uh, operating on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, as, as you said. But these, this is part of what's been going on um, long before renewables came into the picture. These buyers, uh, wholesale markets, PJM is, is from Pennsylvania, Jersey, and Maryland. There's one called MISO, M-I-S-O, which spans uh, from uh, Minnesota to, to Louisiana and, and, and several others around the United States that uh, really are the, the big buyers and sellers of energy into the utilities and then into the grid and into our individual homes and businesses. And um, the, the role that uh, businesses are, are playing in sort of redesigning these markets to meet their own clean energy goals 
is actually shaping how these markets operate in, in some new ways. And it's it's really interesting if uh, you are an energy buyer in a company and 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 looking at your own company's commitments, it's really important that you understand you don't have to be a Google or a General Motors or a Walmart to want to play in these role in these markets, but you do need to understand them. Yeah, and and uh, to, speaking of General Motors, um, they were uh, Rob Threlkeld was involved with the announcement of this this these principles, and you know it, this is this quote actually kind of really puts it well I think in terms of thinking about what this means. He says a wholesale market allows you to really match that generation with the load at the lowest cost possible. So in other words, being able to see where the solar power is surging, what where potentially wind might be waning, and be able to to make your buy on the on the place where you want that renewable energy. So it's it's just again it's a purchasing mechanism and this this it, it's just really actually points to the sophistication of of the movement here and and where it's going. So Heather, you've queued up a number of clips from uh, last week's Verge conference. You did, we had some in last week's episode, and we have so much great content that I'm sure we'll be possibly running these for another week. But uh, what have you got for us this week? Right. So yes, indeed, there were a number of uh, highlights I wanted to use for this week. There was a session on resilience that included uh, Kate Gordon, the director of the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research. And Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, it was just a fascinating conversation about what resilience means and how how the the sort of focus on the just transition, like what happens now as we come out of this period of, of COVID and the pandemic and how we look to the future and think about where our energy investments are and our, our transportation investments are and so forth. So I wanted to queue up two sets of clips. Um, one is is uh, I'll start first with Kate Gordon. And um, the question that uh, she was responding to about what does a just transition mean and why is it so important? Um, and here's Kate talking about why it's different. She really actually, I, I've never really heard anyone define just transition before and I loved her definition and you know why it's different everywhere. The, the governor's executive order on, on transportation transformation and zero emission vehicles actually specifically calls for the first time for my office, along with our labor workforce development agency to, to create a just transition roadmap. And, um, and that's, I think it's really important to say that just transition to us really means the same thing as high road economic development. We're talking about a transition to a more sustainable, resilient, and equitable economy that provides pathways into that economy for underserved communities and for the folks who've been left out, frankly, um, of the current economy. It's, it's not about, I think sometimes people have this idea that a just transition is, oh, I'm going to replace your job with a green job. That's what I mean by just transition. That's not what we're talking about. There are no green jobs. We're greening the entire economy. The entire economy needs to become more sustainable and more resilient. The entire economy needs to be powered by cleaner energy and cleaner technologies. That is a major opportunity. 
across every sector and every region of the state, of the country, of the world on how we get there. There's innovation, there's opportunity, innovations in technology, innovations in processes, innovation in project finance, innovation in how we engage communities, in being part of a solution that's a bottom-up solution. What, what works in Stockton is different than what works in Bakersfield, is different than what works in LA and San Francisco. It's just a different story depending on where you are. So I really see this conversation about just transition, honestly, as an opening to a more bottom-up, community-driven economic development approach here in California and everywhere, frankly, where we can talk about, look, we know where we need to get. We know where the fault lines are. We know what we did wrong last time. Let's work to change it. Let's work to build out a better economy. I think there's a ton of opportunity there. Frankly, for companies, even companies that are currently in the fossil fuel economy, there's opportunity to diversify. There's opportunity to build on skills and infrastructure. There's a huge amount that can be done. And then we'll pick up with Michael Tubbs. He talked about not just what the just transition means to his his city, but why financing for it is so important and, and what certain communities really need. Part of having a just transition is having the financing available so those most impacted by the harms we seek to mitigate stand to benefit um, in terms of their, their, their work, their jobs, their wages, but also in terms of sort of their own bills. Um, and this new just green economy that's going to be widespread throughout the entire economy that we want to build. Um, one of the things we're doing in Stockton is we're now moving forward, not at the pace I would like to, but still moving forward on looking at community choice energy and, and, and figuring out sort of we're in the middle of a feasibility assessment now in terms of how much will it cost, what do we need, how do we set it up, how many users will we need to activate. Again, being responsive to what we heard from folks is that, that an understanding that, yes, I do want to use renewable energy, but yes, I also want to be able to, to, to pay to be able to afford it. And I also understand that what I'm doing now is not sustainable, that my PG&E bills now, my utility bills now are not sustainable, but I also don't have the money to make the investment initially to get me to a more sustainable path. And we had a, a terrific, a terrific conversation with Wade Crowfoot, the Secretary of Natural Resources for the state of California. And I wanted to cue up two clips. The first one, really, he's really talking about the value of protecting nature and why it's it's such a consequential thing to do for climate change. It's not just about controlling emissions; it's about protecting nature. So here's Wade Crowfoot. Protecting, conserving nature starts with our scientific understanding of nature. And so the state of California has invested a lot in, in, in scientific understanding of our natural and working land, but then also the impacts of climate change. You may know that the federal government has had a national climate assessment uh, over some period of time. Uh, we in California have actually uh, created our own scientific assessment to really downscale global planetary science to understand what are the impacts of, of climate change in, in California. And we said very clearly to the president and, the, and his administration fairly recently, we cannot ignore the science. Uh, if we're gonna actually uh, address climate change, but also protect Californians from these climate-driven impacts like wildfire, like drought, we have to utilize the science. So we need a scientific basis of understanding, but then of course we need the technology uh, to, uh, to ultimately monitor where uh, our, our vulnerabilities, our threats are greatest on our lands and where our opportunities are richest. Uh, and so I would say the private sector has developed remarkable platforms um, using satellite, using land and oceans uh, observations, 
I'm using conservation genomics actually within animals to really understand the state of our nature. Uh, we in California are working to utilize that um, through uh, public-private partnerships. So for example, LIDAR uh, technology that provides high resolution uh, imagery in our forests has been very helpful to us to understand where the fire severity or fire risks are greatest and actually led to some management decisions in fighting uh, the wildfires uh, this summer. Likewise, remote imaging technology is demonstrating a lot of promise to understand evapotranspiration or the way water is used uh, in our agricultural sector. These partnerships with the business sector are gonna be critical because obviously a core competence of state government is not technology development. We need the best and the brightest companies to be developing these platforms and then help us meet our public interest goals through the use of these platforms. So that's one thing I'm really excited about. And if you look at uh, ArcGIS or Planet Jupiter, there's some amazingly powerful techno technology platforms out there that if we're gonna reach our goals in California to protect 30% uh, of the land by 2030, we're gonna need to utilize. And then the second clip I'd love to uh, cue up from Crowfoot was him speaking about why resilience needs to go hand in hand with mitigation strategy. 20 years ago, the climate movement really was two sides of a coin. Climate mitigation, in other words, how do we reduce uh, carbon emissions and climate adaptation, which at that time was seen as sort of a policy wonky uh, planning exercise for future decades. And more of the political focus, more of the philanthropic resources, more of the technology innovation went to uh, you know, reducing carbon pollution. But what we realize now is that the climate impacts that we anticipated by the mid or end of the century are materializing now. So building climate resilience, which I define as protecting people and nature from the impacts of climate change, has taken on immediate urgency. And in California, and I would argue throughout the world, it is a matter of protecting uh, people's uh, public health and safety. So we can no longer stovepipe or compartmentalize uh, pollution reduction, and resilience. We need to take action uh, to both continue to reduce pollution, but then strengthen the ability of communities and natural places to weather these climate impacts. So we're working on integrating the two in California. Two good examples. One is, if we can actually do more ecologically appropriate forest management, so for example, um, reintroduce prescribed burning, which native communities did in California since time immemorial, uh, before they were prohibited from doing so. If we can do that, if we can reintroduce uh, small-scale prescribed burning, we achieve climate mitigation, reducing pollution, because we reduce these, the, the potential of these catastrophic wildfires that emit so much carbon pollution. But guess what? In doing so, we also protect communities and natural ecosystems, because the less of these giant catastrophic wildfires that totally denude uh, the landscape uh, the better off we are for our atmosphere, but also our communities. And then I'll just repeat the example of regenerative agriculture and uh, so-called carbon farming, which is the more uh, organic content we can get into our soils, um, the more uh, carbon removal we can achieve through agriculture. Also, when that drought comes, which will come more severely as a result of warming temperatures from climate change, guess what? our agriculture will, will be more resilient because the organic content in the soil retains more water. 
which is obviously uh, critical uh, during drought. So to me, there's now, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a false distinction between resilience and, uh, and, and climate uh, mitigation or, or uh, pollution reduction. We have to do it together. And I'm excited that a lot of what we're actually investing in in California is doing both. And finally, Joel, you had a terrific conversation with Gina McCarthy, the former EPA administrator and current CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council. I wanted to queue up two clips from her. One is Gina talking about the role of big business in climate action. Well, I think big businesses' challenges, they have to look at their entire supply chain and they have to be transparent in how they're actually telling us what they are valuing and what they are missing and how we can make our consumer choices accordingly. I think big business is beginning to get it, but there's a long way to go. And I think during that process, we can start driving solutions to the table that will give them pause that will make them realize that that we're not talking about sacrifice here. We are actually talking about benefits that we bring to the table. The, you know, the areas in, in which NRDC works is we work in areas like energy. Now, I know clean energy is cheaper if the administration in Washington didn't mess up with it. And I know people will make money on it, and so does the utilities these days. Let's support that effort. Let's invest in the grid and everything that we need to connect all these wonderful technologies and businesses uh, together. And we work in transportation. There is no question about the electric vehicles and their performance. If we can work together to get them out in the numbers we need and we build the infrastructure working together with the private and public sector, it is going to take off and they are going to win. Same with the hydrogen technologies that are available for heavy duty vehicles and others. These are hugely exciting opportunities. And we're looking at housing. How do we start really investing in the house of the future? And far too long, we have been timid at the local level. So if we can work at the local level, at the state level, it really won't matter who's sitting at the federal level. We're still going to make progress. But my hope is that we'll now have, you know, an opportunity to really drive at every level of government the kind of change we want. And it will open up markets everywhere. And just because I think we all need something optimistic and hopeful, I wanted to cue uh, up her one of her closing thoughts. And um, here we go. I think you'll enjoy this. In this moment, I would like everybody to hug their children. I would like them to listen to them about the future they want. And I'd like you as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends and relatives and neighbors to deliver a future for them that you are going to be proud of. That's your responsibility and that's what will get us there. And I think we'll do it because we don't care as much about anything else as we care about protecting our families. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about everything we talked about this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We always love to hear from you. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. 
Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com.